0: Hello and welcome to my first ever podcast and hello if you're watching on YouTube. Let's dive straight into the topic for this episode, starting your own bicycle company, the idea of which frankly scares the hell out of me. But to offer some insight into starting a bicycle company, I'm joined by Neil Webb, the founder of Bowman Cycles. Hello, Neil, how are you doing?
1: Hi Dave, very well, thank you. And yeah, thanks well- for joining
0: me. So let's dive straight in. You started Bowman Cycles in 2014. Can you recall the actual moment you decided to start the company?
1: Uh, Yeah, it was half past two in the morning. I'd been out um, whilst at a big trade show in Taiwan while I was working for somebody else and things weren't going so well. Um, I just thought it's a lot of work doing this when it's not being appreciated or rewarded or no. It's, Yeah. It was, it's, it, it just wasn't working out. So um, I just thought, if I'm going to do this much work, I might as well do it for myself. Um, classic, how hard can it be? But, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot harder, <laughs> as, as you subsequently find out with these things, as is always the way.
0: And it's worth giving the viewers and the listeners some context, some some background about yourself, because you're not new to the bike industry, you've got quite a lot of experience. You were a journo at one point. How important was all that experience in getting to a point where you could launch your own bike company?
1: Um, I think the thing about most things, there's a kind of there's a phrase, you know, you do 10,000 hours and you're big, you know, you start to have a skill or you know, I don't I don't think ten thousand hours is enough to be an expert on much because every day you learn something. Um but, God, I mean, I came to London for a weekend probably, what was it, August 17th, oh God, 2004, something like that, um, and pretty much since then worked in and out of the bike industry, classic bike shops to start with. So yeah, I worked in bike shops for a bit, and one of the people who rode for the bike shop team um he worked out what was What Mountain Bike then, when What Mountain Bike was produced by an independent publisher in London. Um, and I did some photo shoots for them, then started doing a little bit more work for them, then did more work for them on and off for a few years. Um, they went, they went um, the publishing house went pop. So that kind of stopped. Um, and then I was probably bike messengering for a little while. Did a few other things, then went back into bike shops, then kind of bike shops, bike messengering, film work, camera work, um, and Paul Burwell from MBR magazine. Actually, no, back up a little bit. At MBR, uh, at What Mountain Bike, um, which started out as Which Mountain Bike, but became What Mountain Bike then. Um uh, Alan Muldoon and Danny Milner, um, who both work at NBR now, t- tech editor and editor or dep head, I'm not sure now. Um, they both worked with me and Jeff War, who was the editor and is still a photographer now that quite a lot of people will probably know. if They follow mountain biking. He's been around great kind of capture of moments, really. Um, so, jumping forward after a few years out of sort of being directly in the bike industry, but still riding bikes. I got a call from Alan because PB had come off his bike, broken like his left arm and left wrist or something and couldn't do any bike testing. And they needed someone to, um, needed someone to go on a press trip. And he said, am I flexible enough? Um, so I asked, I was actually driving a van at the time for like a, Air freight company. Um, so I asked my boss if I could take three three days off or four days off at short notice. Um, and they said no. And then Alan said, "Oh, it's a Marzocchi launch at Whistler." So I quit the job driving a van at that moment. Um, it's like you know, free trip to Whistler. You can't say no. So yeah, don't blame me. I've done the same. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good. Um, and then from then on, I was, I went back dispatch riding because it's more flexible and was kind of freelance journalist with NBR for a while. Um, And then while I was at NBR, I started also because I was always into road riding and road racing, but didn't really work that much Um, in that sort of didn't work in that sphere. I was always kind of off-road with the kind of work side of journalism. And then um, sat because I used to sit across across a desk in the IPC office from Mike Hawkins, who was the tech ed at Cycling Weekly, and Richard Hallett, who was also there at that time. For some reason, they had two tech eds, internal office politics and all that sort of stuff. It was good fun. Started doing some... By that point, I was full-time at NBR, but was then doing some freelance on the road. Um, and then after a while, I was kind of... I I wasn't I wasn't enjoying a it's, it's that classic thing if you don't know how good it you've got it, really. Because I had a great job and I was riding bikes and writing about them and telling people about them for a living, which was brilliant, but I kind of got a bit of a weird thing because I would always get the hard tail tests and I'd have to do the cheap bike tests. Um but I kind of didn't really realise or appreciate at the time that that's probably the most learning you do in any um, journalism task. And it's, you know, it, reality is it's the most valuable part because they're the new people in the business. They're the new riders. So they're the ones that need the most information. Um, didn't really realise how busy the train line was.
0: Morning rush hour.
1: Yeah, it's actually um, a freight line that goes behind there mostly. But, um... Anyway, um, so at that point, I started looking around for other jobs in the bike industry, and then went to work as a brand manager at Madison, who were a big importer. I mean, at the time, they were doing, they still do Shimano, but they were doing Cervelo, they were doing Giro, they were, you know, they're one of the biggest UK importers. Um, And I ended up looking after a load of Italian brands, San Marco, Elite, um, American Tools, and park and finish line and stuff like that so learn a huge amount about um sort of the commerce side of side of the industry and then um then where did i go from there i went to evan's um head office as marketing manager on own brand because um, i enjoyed more the storytelling side of it than the finance side of it um you know I'm perfectly capable of driving spreadsheets for a living and do way more of that than <laughs> I ever thought I would. But, um, so then went to, uh, Evans to do marketing and then probably two year or so after that, somebody left cycling weekly. So there was a full time position back on the tech writing team at cycling weekly. So then went back to that, um, did that for another couple of years. Um, but while I was there, I would always, I'd always done a lot of photography as well as the writing as kind of a freelance photographer. Um, I've always liked graphic design. Um, so I always used to speak to, speak to the designers and speak to the photo um, researchers at the mag. So I understood how, how it worked more. And as a tech writer, all you should be doing is creating the words and sending them in and that's it. But, I just got as as interested in the kind of project managing. So if you had a big, a big project like you know, clothing, winter clothing special, you know, like sixteen page pull out in the magazine, you're effectively it's just like a big project where you kind of create shot lists, you create design ideas, you work with all the different teams. Um, so I kind of took a bit of a like an overview on that stuff as well as doing the writing and as well as kind of being involved in the photos and art directing photo shoots and that sort of stuff. Um, and then I randomly, I was on a plane to Mallorca with my wife, just going on holiday, nothing to do with cycling, but I had my bike because you do, um, and a chap sat next to me on a plane, um, reading pro cycling magazine. So you get talking, um, and he turned out to be someone who'd worked, um, in motor racing, worked in the motorbike industry. Um, and was kind of picking my brain and ended up on the side of working at cycling weekly as a writer, um, doing some kind of consulting for him and sort of telling him how he could get, a, he wanted to move into the bike industry cause he'd kind of just wanted to do that. So did some of that, then ended up doing a little bit of design work for him and then ended up, we got to the point where it was like, well, if this, if this bike company is going to work, um, this bike company is going to work. It's you know I, I have to do it full time because you don't have the experience in bike design or anything like that. So went full time for him, and that kind of leads back into that me being in Taiwan, problem solving at Taichung Bike Week, having been there for a week, sorting out horrendous issues with manufacturing or supply or something or other, and then just getting a text message at the at two thirty in the morning while he was in the warehouse in the UK and I was. 9,000 kilometers away, asking where something was. And I was like, you're next to the boxes. Can you not just look? And that didn't go down well. So we kind of had a bit of a falling out at that point. I thought, so I'll do it. Do it myself. Um, and while I was there, I'd met a few other people anyway. Um, started to kind of get a bit more into the bike industry and over there and seeing people and meeting people. So I think that morning I was getting a high-speed rail train to Taipei Airport. Um, messaged someone on the train, um, emailed them a couple of draw ideas for drawings, um, and just said, you know, let me know how much this might cost to get a couple of samples made. our flight to Hong Kong, landed in Hong Kong, sat in Pizza Express at Hong Kong Airport, and got an email back. Here's the two drawings, here's the price. So thought, sod it. I mean, it's 500 quid, 600 quid, 600 dollars to get a couple of samples made you know worst case out of all of this I end up with two unique bikes so so I've got the first samples of a palace frame and a track frame that has yet to see the light of day but is actually up there on the wall so
0: that's that's quite a journey and um lots of experience you've gathered along the way from reviewing bikes to branding and marketing to working for a bike company how important would you say that experience you gathered over years was to launch your own bike yeah. company and could you do it if you didn't have that experience
1: um i think I, i've spoke to a few people about this sort of stuff in the past and most startup companies start with two people one person who's like detail and nitty-gritty and numbers and one person who's like ideas and airy-fairy up there and you kind of balance out which is why most companies have two founders because you kind of have complementary skill sets. I think the the fact that I could do everything from marketing, pictures, graphics, university was um, architectural technician, so I understand and can do drawings and understand, you know, structural engineering gives you a pretty good idea of how, beams and forces and that sort of stuff works then combine that with the real world experience of what tubing shape seems to do when you ride a bicycle um there's no way i could have done everything i did do and start as a real rounded company without having all of that and then throw into the side of that the people you meet you know the riding group i was with was kind of fairly creative anyway with graphic designers and branding people and spoke to them and kind of the having a real, you know, being able to explain the reason you are qualified to do something um, is kind of pretty pivotal as as a new person on the block because it's like doesn't matter if you've got the lightest, stiffest, or whatever. If no one understands why that's important, it's a pointless pointless endeavor. So you've got to make sure. That you're able to explain why the bikes you've chosen to design are worth considering the risk
0: of starting a company seems uh i mean uh, something that definitely put a lot of people off myself included and you mentioned the risk when you said it's just two frames 500 pounds i mean how much do you wear at the risk of starting your own company how much was that an element in your decision and and taking that plunge
1: it was was, there's a lot of kind of de-risking involved in some of this stuff um i've never been massively financially motivated you know i'm not trying to get a super yacht um we'd my wife and i at the time had we'd just sold a house it was a terrible terrible decision um in terms of buying a share never buy a shared ownership house it's a it's just an absolute con but anyway so we basically mother-in-law was quite infirm mm, tick tick it's quite a noisy one right yeah so um my mother-in-law had kind of she, she she's elderly and needed some help at home and we'd kind of made a decision that we would go and live with her for a little while um and we kind of so we'd sold our house just about covered our costs and had i don't know 16 17 grand spare or something so tiny amount of money and you know what can you do we didn't have to spend it on a new deposit or anything like that but you know one percent interest rate if you're lucky if you put that in savings maybe 1.5 if you get an ISA um but it was like what's what's the worst that can happen you know
0: it seemed like there's very much a spur of the moment decision. Was or was there a a plan? Did you rapidly form a plan to start a bike company to get you to where you are now, or was it just um, dive in and see what
1: happens? I mean, there's there's a certain you know the second you make a plan, it's it's out of date. Um, but you have to have a plan so you know whether you're meeting or beating it. So yeah, you, you 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 know you you do make some form of bit loose business plan, um, but you have no idea you honestly have zero idea and it's you know it's, it's like a bike race you know it, you know you attack in a bike race and you know that you have way more chance of losing than winning that race but if you want to win it you've got to at least try to you know you've got to be prepared to lose to win and that you know 12 16 grand whatever it was that i kind of i put in of our money to start something um I was also you know at home looking after a mother-in-law working from home so it was kind of this thing of we either pay someone to work there and I earn some money or while I'm doing this something else while I was starting the company for the first year I was also still freelance journalism so I still had a little bit of money coming in so it's you know it's just like those balancing things and kind of our personal situation in terms of we needed someone to be at home to do lunch and medication and all that sort of stuff for kind of family. It, it just worked. Um, so there's a bunch of circumstances and throw in the fact that because I could do the graphic design, I could do the photography, I could do the drawings, I could do this, I could do that. And I had good partners in Taiwan. You yeah, know what? Yes. It's, I mean, it's, it's a huge risk, but, you know, if it goes wrong, no one's dying.
0: And were friends and family supportive of this uh, risk uh, you are taking, never, or they put barriers against it, or um, it's a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, I know it's only money, but it's still a lot of cash.
1: It's a lot of cash, but it's not enough cash that you can do that much with it. It's it's enough cash that you can fritter it away on absolutely nothing. It's only, you know four, five, five or six nice holidays over two or three years. At the end of it, you've got nothing apart from a few memories. So we could have, you know, got a nicer greenhouse. We could have put an extra couple of beds, raised beds in the garden. We could have done the bathroom with a bit more, whatever. But if we'd have done that, we wouldn't have had somebody at home looking after a mother-in-law, wouldn't have had, wouldn't have had somebody at home to be cooking, it, it, it kind of all balanced out. And my, my situation was that we were in the situation where I didn't need to earn a huge amount of money because my value in our kind of personal situation was that um, I, w- I was doing that as well as running a company. Um, and, yeah, it it's, a, it's an absolutely petrifying, massive risk because the reality is it's probably not going to work out. But so what? What if you you know if you don't nothing's a mistake until you do it a second time. Nothing. You know, and you can't try anything, you know. You could buy a new car and it'd be the wrong car. You could do anything and it's like it's a waste of money. But is it a waste of money if you've learned something? Me leaving the bike industry and going to work for somebody who's got no experience in the bike me leaving a bike magazine with a good, well paid job that I really enjoyed and was great fun to start my own company with somebody else previously was a massive risk. Me, you know, a- anything you do in life is, is a risk, you know, change jobs. You left a well-paying job to start a YouTube channel. You nuts. Well-paying. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, and you were, you know, well, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So yeah you, no, you, I, I... you took that risk. That's, that's nut. to me. That's, that's nuts. Cause I know how hard YouTube can be.
0: Yeah, I guess it comes down to experience in that field, isn't it? And you Hmm. assess the risk based on that experience. So you've taken a plunge. You put all your life savings to a bicycle brand. Let's talk about Boma Cycles brand. And I mean, was that a fully formed idea in your head when you had that idea at 230? Or how much market research was there? Um, You've got lots of experience in road and mountain bike, but you focus on a road uh, range to start with.
1: Yeah, I, I think I knew, knew. I mean, the reality is you were there when I took the first two, some of the first samples out of a box and we rode them around Crystal Palace Park, some cross frames. And it was just like, I think these are going to be right. And then we rode them. And it was like, there, yeah, these are really good. And that, you know, that had happened once before with the Palace the Palace prototype frame. Um, and it was, it's just one of those things. You, you think you have enough of an idea that you can make a bike that's going to be good. And I'm sure you as somebody who tests bikes would like to take the front end of this and the rear end of that with a cable routing of that, with this, of that, and be like, that would be the perfect bike. Why doesn't someone make it? So I was the person who made it. The, the, the classic, you know, all these modern clothing companies. Why did you start a clothing company? Oh, well, I, you know, I went around the shops and I couldn't find any clothing that I wanted to buy. So I made my own and that's how X started. It, it's the same, you know. A most successful businesses come out of identifying a problem and presenting a solution. And then, you know, the solution is this, you know. so You had a
0: very fortunate position where you you had a job where you reviewed bikes for a living. So you rode more bikes than the average uh, cyclist. That must have been fairly important in influencing your direction of the bike brands in terms of geometry and design.
1: Um, Look, I, I think I I knew the sort of bikes I enjoyed riding, and that was mountain bike and road bikes. Um, and I knew there were a lot of people that liked the same thing because at MBR, when you did Trail Bike of the Year, it wasn't that we chose a bike that nobody else liked. It's like you learn you learn what it is that's like the absolute essence of cycling, and it's just grinning you're like mountain bike you get to the bottom of the run and you're just like oh did you did you do that that was that all this sort of stuff and on a road bike that can be a descent it can be a corner it can be racing your mates around something and you're just laughing at each other and that that like at the core playfulness that fun that smile that all that sort of stuff that's what if a bike had that no matter what sort of bike it was it was always a good bike And I sort of, over time through that experience, you slowly kind of coalesce that all into an idea of what those things are. So I knew that if I was going to make a a racy bike, a performance bike, it would be, it would have X, Y, and Z in it. If I was going to make an endurance bike, I didn't want this. I wanted this. Um, So I was pretty confident that those basics would work based on the experience of testing all those other things and understanding what it is. So I knew the sort of bikes I wanted to make, but in terms of was the brand coherent to start with or anything else, not at all. And that was uh, a good friend of mine, Andy Robinson, who's a, he's a someone I rode with, um, you know, the classic, you know, that was the group of people that were all in a cycling club together, like left because they only ever rode with the same four or five people and that becomes a new cycling group. So we had this cycling group of friends and some, I was saying before, some creatives, a tailor, a graphic designer. So, you know, you hang around with the same sort of creative minds. Um, and I sat down with Andy and he was like, we all know that you will make good bikes because you're the person in the group that we always ask what to buy. Cause you've clearly got the experience, but why? You know, he was forcing me to ask, why would I, why was I doing it? Why would anyone else who doesn't know you do that? And so we kind of drilled it down and it was, it was like my road riding started when I moved to London and couldn't go mountain biking really. So, and all of the lanes you go out and you learn and all of that information and the races you go to and the places you go and the emotions you get when you've lived in the same place as me a while ago and you know, you leave London, you go out in Lamb's and you get around that corner and you turn the corner just as you get towards the top of Bedlestead and that opens out and you get the valley down the side. And it's, that corner is one of those places where you just, you relax. And everybody has places on the routes. It's like, it can be the first time you feel in the countryside. It can be the final final bit of lanes before you get home, whatever it is but everyone has places on their local regular routes that make them feel at home. Um, and we kind of, as Andy and I were talking, this sense of home and place and that being the kind of very essence of where all my cycling knowledge and experience coalesces. That's a noisy one. <laughs> yeah, I think that's gravel going to the uh, aggregate, <laughs> aggregate mine by the river. <laughs> if
0: worth most just letting viewers and listen to know where you're based to explain the trains rumbling oh, past yeah, every so
1: basically we're we're based in yeah, we're we're based in South London um in a place called Brockley which is between Lewisham and Peckham um and anyone in London will know that South London is riddled with train going the other way now. Every South London is riddled with kind of suburban train lines and um we're on the Lewisham Loop, which was an old bit of railway that is now reopened because it feeds like a gravel and aggregate place um, out on the island, uh, down by sort of down towards Greenwich.
0: So these roads you're talking about are down to Kent for people not familiar with that area. Yes. Yeah. Um, it sounds like the, the roads and the way you ride have shaped the bike you've created. Yeah. But how confident were you that the bike you created in your style, and your mold almost, would have a, a wider appeal have people would actually want to buy your bikes that you've designed to your taste
1: some of that sort i guess some of that's based on um, when you when you do bike reviews in magazines or on websites if a bike wins if, if a bike wins a group test and that group test has been com, sort of has had five or six other people in it testing the bikes with you you've already got like an opinion that's based on a lot of experience and also then you see other magazines reach the same conclusions and then you have readers and people in bike shops talking about stuff they you 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 slowly realize that you do know what you're talking about and there's a lot of people who want the same thing out of bikes. You know, there are out, obviously there are outliers. Um, some people are obsessed about weight. Some people are obsessed about stiffness. Some people are obsessed about the strangest things. Um, but I'm not. I, I want bikes to make you smile. Because to me, that's the most important thing. You've got to remember that we're just playing. You know, we're, 99% of people who buy bikes are not trying to get the nth watt to beat somebody to whatever. It's just not what we're riding bikes for. We might pretend that we are, but we're not. It's not, it's not the be-all and end-all. doesn't actually matter if that person beats you up the hill. You're still going to enjoy the riding. Um, so that, at the center of it, the enjoyment of cycling is kind of it's a pretty it's a pretty universal thing i think um and i've got a reasonable amount of confidence that if you if if bikes are fun to ride people enjoy riding them and will enjoy it if they buy one
0: so the company's taking shape the the bikes have been designed can you tell us more about the process from that original idea sketch to actually having a frame in your hands and i mean, because your frames aren't made locally, they're made in Asia, so it's, that must be a challenge in itself, like knowing where to get frames made, who do you speak to? I mean, you can't just pop around a corner to yeah. get a frame made, so that must be a, quite a, back,
1: back a challenge. sketch to to frame. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a there's a number of different ways of doing it. If you have a background in... Bloody hell. Anyway. Um, the, yeah, there are a number of ways of doing it. Um... You know, if you have a background in CAD and you know aluminium or carbon fibre or, or whatever, you know you can do in-depth CAD design yourself and then get every tiny little thing made custom to what you want to do. Um, or you kind of—I'm uh, trying to work out how to how to frame it. As as we kind of alluded to earlier, there's 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 some very very basic things which you know will make a bike handle well, which could be as simple as, you know, bottom bracket here, stack and reach here for this size, or bottom bracket height and fork jump, sort of fork handling geometry are the kind of key and weight distribution. And if you you kind of start with what am I, what am I doing? Go back to first principles of, I want to make a really playful, fast bike. Right. What are the key things that are going to be there? And it's, as we're saying, bottom bracket height, weight distribution, front and rear, and the front end handling, which is head angle and fork rake and trail and all those into the weeds over there. Um and conversely if you want to make an endurance bike it's got to be a little bit this and a little bit that varying those varying those same things so you work out how to join those bits together and through experience you know that basic crossoverization of a tube so that way at one end and that way at the other will stop that one going up and down as much and that one there and you get the perfect balance of lateral rigidity and vertical compliance right those early journalistic ways are (laughs) always there but the the fundamentals of that cliched phrase are right you want a bike to not bend that way so it goes in a straight line but to move up and down that way so it doesn't beat you up um and from basic engineering a, a beam that's taller doesn't bend along its length as much as one that's flat so you know that so you can put that into tubing shapes so if you've got the basic geometry right and you want the rear axle to move up and down as much as you can, but not move too much side to side, you know that a structure that joins the two things together has to be a certain shape. So at that point, you've got your basics, and then you will go to your manufacturing partner in Taiwan and say, you know, here's a basic thing. If we had round tubes, it would be this. (laughs) And then you would look through tubing, supplier shapes that are already made when you're starting out, Um, maybe it's worth backing up a little bit when you make a frame you either make every tube completely unique yourself and you pay for molds for everything or you go to a tubing supplier that already makes tubes with tube profiles or butt lengths or or whatever exactly the same way as a custom frame builder does they go through the reynolds catalog or the columbus catalog and we all know that a custom frame builder can make a bike that looks identical, handle completely different just by choosing different tubes. No two 531 frames ride the same. No two Columbus airplane frames ride the same. So, you know, once you understand that tuning things makes a difference, you've got your basic structure, you tune the details, and then you work on like third level things, which are cable routing and stuff like that. Certain things you definitely want might be a bottom bracket type. It might be a head tube size. That might be limited by what forks you can buy from a manufacturer in the quantities you need, all that sort of stuff. So there's varying levels, and all of those things change over time. You know, you start out just buying off-the-shelf off the parts, which are completely standard, but put in a way, together in a way, a combination that you like. Then you might have a tubing shape that you know, but you want a bit more movement in a direction so you'll change a butt length or you want it a bit lighter or whatever or you change your head tube shape for a different bearing size because you've found a new fork supplier or you've decided you're going to make your own forks and you choose that and it might be a axle to crown length that changes or something like that so it uh, f- the the process is the same no matter how much of it you change you start at that first principles of knowing what you want a bike to do i mean we're going through it with a gravel bike at the moment which is you know, we want it to have a certain handling characteristics and we want to have this much tire. And once you've done that, that then dictates various things you can do. You know, if you want to put, if you want to have good clearance around a 50 mil, 700c tire and run the option for a double chain set if you want to, that completely dictates chainstay stay length. Um, and, you know, the front end handling is completely determined on whether you want to offer the option of someone to run a suspension fork or not because you've got to design the head tube around a axle to crown of 415 rather than 400 say and then you've got to get a rigid fork at 415 so that you have the option of suspension corrected standard fork or something like that there's lots of kind of start first principles work out what the limiting factors are then go from there it's kind of it
0: and what sort of time frame are we talk about here from that original idea to having your first frame painted up with Bowman on a down tube? And how many prototypes did you go through before you got to the final one? Was there a few trial and error frames? Um,
1: it, it, it varies. Um, first one, November, uh, October, sent the email, had the frames in January, first two sample frames in January. There was nothing that needed tweaking that needed another prototype on that one. But we did tweak some things and then um, put it into production, and the frames landed nine or ten months later. So, Pretty like, finished think, frames. Yeah, I think we from first email to first frame sale was probably eleven and a half months on the so very first one. That and that was quick. That was quick. That, that's amazing. Um, I mean, other ones we've had the Palace R frame set two or three prototypes with some changes pilgrims one, three, three, three changes footscray one two three four yeah it varies it varies massively um but the footscray was an interesting one because we did the original footscray and the pilgrim so a cyclocross and a kind of endurance road frame we did at the same time and they shared a lot of characteristics so The bottom bracket design was shared across them. The dropout design was loosely shared but adapted for through axle and quick release. Cable routing changed substantially because at first we were just like, gets proof of concept, just continuous outer, strapped along the top tube, whatever. Then we went through a couple of different iterations of tubing because then we'd found the bottom bracket system we wanted to use, which allowed internal at the front and stuff. That was probably two years napkin to landing the gen three stuff it was a weird one because it kind of half started stopped and started again but again that was a couple of years um and i mean at the moment it's longer just because no one has any capacity because the world's upside down in an odd place so back to that
0: that first frame You've, you've got the idea you've done a few um designs got a sample you're happy with a sample and the company hasn't yet launched at what point or how much commitment is there in saying to your supplier i want x number of frames and you make you go from you know, making prototypes which is fairly low cost low risk to actually committing to a container load of frames i guess big financial outlay yeah. we're actually doing this no
1: that's what that's where you drop the 20k okay <laughs> 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 yeah
0: yeah i mean yeah, that's yeah. another so you're going from the, there's a risk of having an idea of starting a company to the risk of actually committing to starting a company yeah. and that big yeah, financial outlet yeah. so i mean that's a is that a bigger smaller risk on that journey um Was it's
1: just more- a risk point a longer the journey
0: there's a point yeah. of no return, really because you could have stopped before and said this has been fun i've got two frames out of it i'll continue being a
1: driver um, I, I think, whatever I think, you want to be you know You you know enough about the bike industry to know that if you sold those frames at cost, you'd get back 85% of your money. It's fine. And you've learned along the way. There is actually a really big point here that's a pretty personal thing of the amount of shit you learn along your kind of journey as you do stuff. And I've changed loads. I've done lots of different jobs. I've learned in every one of them. And I'm a better more competent person even though I may not have finished or been successful in any of those jobs every single one of those jobs along my process to where I am today has taught me something that's been useful later in life and every day that continues so when you kind of have that philosophy of you know might not work out but I'm not going to make the same mistake again. And that mistake might not be directly the mistake you made, but the process that gets you to that mistake, you don't do again. It's how you're defining success as well. If success is I have to make, you know, from this 20,000 pounds, I've got to make 30. You either do or don't. But if from this 20,000 pounds, I've got to be able to continue doing something and learning every day. Great. It's not, a, it's not a. It's not a. failure, you know. People's views on what is success and what is failure are very different. There's obviously financial necessities that we all have of we have to pay for food, shelter, and warmth. But beyond that, does any of it really matter?
0: I guess Bit it comes deeper. down to where you say where you say your targets really, isn't it? and how where your ambition is. I mean, how ambitious? Whether yeah. you want to take over the world, or create the yeah. biggest bike brand in the world, or just make enough to. To live on so going back to um you sign off that 20k for a container load of frames gonna be a few weeks on the water i guess in between then and the brand launching uh, just a website nice logo um,
1: put for sale. I'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to remember trying to remember the timeline
0: um you, you don't sell in bike shops i you sell online only
1: yes um we are direct to the customer so people speak to Could be myself, could be Kitty, could be Colin, could be various people who work with me along the way. But you speak to people who ride the bikes every day. um, I guess
0: selling online makes it much easier to start a bike company. You don't need a bricks and
1: mortar shop that you have to get access to or open your own shop even. Yeah, it's just there's just different challenges because um, you also have no walk-in customers. You have to go out and find them. You have to go and talk to them. Um, And I'm trying to remember the timeline of, I think it would have been around march time that that's when you make the commitment of pay your deposit you know the reality is you've spent all 20 at that point even though you haven't actually spent it you haven't given it to anyone yet but you've spent it because you know what you're going to do give 10 away 50 percent up front or whatever and just have nothing you're not going to do that so you've spent the 20k there so you then it's like right let's get the instagram working let's get this working let's start talking about stuff chat to people you know in the bike industry let them know you're doing stuff and wait for them to be made um but yeah it's you know you've got photography because you've had your samples and if you're sensible and you can take your own photos you can set up a website i mean it it, it does sound silly of like yeah well you know you just take your take your studio photography and create the website and create your e-commerce setup and but that's when it comes down to all the other experience you know and it's like you know what price you know what sort of bike you're making because it's an aluminium race frame so it's it's going to be similar to a cad so you're pricing you know what the market price is it's where the finance experience kind of commercial experience comes in we don't have the cache of Cannondale so maybe you put it a little bit lower but not You know, I know it's a better frame than a Ribble winter frame, one of the old blue aluminium frames. Um, I know it's made of something more than that. I know it's going to be a better frame. It's going to ride better than that. So the price has to reflect that for market kind of position, if you like. So you know what it is going to sell for, and you know what you pay. The difference gives you what you're going to make. So you know if you sell 50 of them, you're going to make this much money. Um, And then you kind of just... Finger in the air, pie in the sky idea. Right, well, maybe we'll sell 200 frames a year. Great, we've got some money. And then you start speaking to people and working out, well, how'd you grow a business? And that becomes a whole other side of things, cash at hand and cash flow and projections and all of that sort of stuff. So I've kind of gone off a bit on a tangent there. Uh, but-
0: when that container first arrived with all your frames, you must have been like immensely proud of what you achieved, but then... And have a fear, kind of risk, like you already yeah. framed, like, I need to sell them now. So the pressure is on to, yeah. to turn around Absolutely. and get customers for them.
1: And Yeah, I could have built a rather large clay based outhouse.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I guess you still working from home at this point, or had you set up an yeah, office yeah. and a discretion no, um, set up I, by the. I mean, I'd, I'd spent like four or five grand converting mother in law's garage into a proper office. So it was a, a real real insulated room with internet and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I had that. I'd committed to a storage unit for that sort of stuff. I'd spent the money on the thing. So, you, yeah, it was It was. we'd need to sell these. Um, and, you know, I'd had a few friends who'd said, oh, when they come, I'll buy one. Or here's some money, send me the frame when it arrives. You know, I think I'd had three people either pay or commit to buying one before their container landed and i have such a strong memory of being sort of sat in the garage as it was always called so sat in the office like one evening at like eight o'clock at night just sitting there going oh jeez <laughs> you know no one's bought one yet what's wrong well, i do <laughs> you know they say if you make them they will come but you know and, you, you know, you have conversations with people via the internet, um, either direct messages or emails or whatever, and I was, you're doing everything yourself, so you're so deep in it, you know every detail, and you know all the people you're talking to by name, and nothing was happening. I mean, it had probably only been three or four weeks or something, but by that point, you're still, what am I going to do? Maybe it wasn't even that long. Anyway, it was a smallish amount of time in the grand scheme of things, and I remember just, like, you get the ping of an email and it was a sale from someone i'd never heard of never spoken to just completely random stranger off of the internet who bought a frame liked what he saw and bought a frame i remember running into the house (laughs) good (laughs) i don't you know i still have that memory of the first actual customer who believed in it enough purely from what was said and what was you know, some of the backstory was on the internet of kind of my personal experience and all the rest of it. So it was like that was like a very gratifying moment. It must be a um, huge
0: of confidence as well to know that somebody, a random person on the internet bought a frame. I don't yeah. know if one person would buy a frame, then there's surely more people out there. So, you-
1: And then and then I think at that point, I'd also it was like, I think I'd got one to Cycling Weekly because ex-colleagues, they said, well, you know, we're happy to support you. Just in terms of if you get us a frame, we'll test it. You know, we're not going to give you any special treatment if we don't like it. We're going to tell you. Um, so I got one there, and I got one to Road CC um, Cycling Weekly got eight or nine out of ten, and I think, um, and then Road CC like that was in the Road Cycling Weekly was probably in the no, no October November time, and we saw a little bit of kind of traction from that, um, and then Road CC Stew Curtain. 10 out of 10, his first ever 10 out of 10 review. And it was the most glowing review we could possibly have ever hoped for that subsequently went on to win frame set of the year, kind of in the January. And then at that point we sold out in four days. Wow. I mean, we didn't have all, all of them left at that point, but you know, it was like, Oh shit, we've sold out. Now what do we do? We've got all this demand and nothing to fulfill for, you know, four months. Cause that's how long it takes to make and do all the rest of it because at that point you normally if you're making something you kind of plan how many you're going to sell and you put a forward order in place to make sure you get stock about when they run out so you don't hold millions of stock all all the rest of it um but at that point it was such a like trickle of sales and then (laughs) like that it was like you can't you can't plan for that sort of stuff so we then had a supply and demand situation um, which has been kind of the story of bowman really of you know doing all right actually oh my god we've got an amazing review it's all gone how are we going to fulfill the demand and on and on and you kind of get these jumps in stuff you know the first pilgrims got really good reviews the palace got really good reviews palace R got really good reviews pilgrims disc got good review so on and so on and there you get these step jumps and you know if you're if you're if you're trying to bootstrap a company yourself, you know we haven't had you know millions of pounds worth of investment or anything else. It's been done kind of organically with little bits of money here and there. And we've had other people come in subsequently and, and help out, but it's never it's, it's never big money in by any stretch of anyone's imagination. So you're always fighting that kind of growth potential versus ability for to fulfil it. When you sold
0: that first batch of frames off the back of that good review, did you give yourself a moment to kind of reflect on what you've achieved in quite a short amount of time from that idea in no, Taipei no, to...
1: not in the slightest. You've never- <laughs> that, that, that's the thing about running your own company, and I'm sure a lot of people will be aware of it. You don't pat yourself on the back enough because you're okay, yeah. so busy either firefighting upsides or downsides all day, every day that... You know, I I've, I feel this when, when I go riding, you're kind of, well, you've, you know, met someone I haven't seen for three or four months on the weekend. And he was like, oh, how's it going? And like, my mind is instantly to the problems you're solving in the moment, rather than being like, yeah, oh, we've got like four, we've got, you know, a hundred of these arriving next week. And we've got hundred of these arriving next week. And all these have sold out. And we've, you know, we're sold out of these many sizes till this month. And yeah, we've sold X amount of complete bikes now. And, you know. But you're so, you just don't give yourself enough time to think, actually, yeah, we're doing all right. I mean, we've kind of ridden out a pandemic. We've ridden out a fair few supply chain issues of a small company and we've got nice offices and, you know, we've got staff and people out, you know, there's, there's thousands of Bowmans out there that people love being ridden. And I still get a little grin whenever I see them. It's great. But no, you don't give yourself anywhere near enough of a pat on the back because you're too busy fighting the problems that the good <laughs> the good sales <laughs> uh, bring on.
0: So here we are, what, seven years after you launch, in your second office, I believe you've moved to a nice new office. The offside office.
1: It depends if you if you class the first kind the of garage. First office as one. The garage was where it started. So garage and storage unit. Then we moved... All bike companies start in garages, don't they? Well, all the best ones. Sydney started specialised in the That's garage. That's true, yeah. Um, well, garage in his van. Oakley started out the back of a, tra- a car.
0: A canyon or a trailer, weren't they?
1: Yep. So, office, Hither Green, Broccoli, Broccoli 2.0, fourth office.
0: So tell me, what's, what's harder,
1: starting a bike company or running a bike company? Oh, running a bike company. Starting a bike company is one decision, done. Running a bike company is a million decisions every day, all of which are wrong in some way.
0: And how much does you, being a, a passionate cyclist, um, ensure you you wake up every day and make coffee and go to the office and try and sell bikes and make new bikes? Is that is that key to running a, a company like yours? Could a uh, non cyclist run a company like yours?
1: I think nobody works in the bike industry for the money anybody who runs their own company anyone who runs their own company has to love the thing they're doing or at least part of it to be able to put up with the stuff they hate doing especially when you start out because you're doing so much you're not you're not making the most of your strengths i mean i my strength isn't necessarily the running of a company it isn't necessarily the minutiae of doing this or that or the other I know what my strengths are, so I don't get to do that all the time, which if you're in a bigger company, you can have more specialisms. But the passion for, you know, I don't have a boss particularly. I have people I'm responsible to and for, um, but I don't have a boss who's telling me I have to be here or do this at this time or this time. I just, I have to do it because I tell myself I do. But if you didn't love it, it's not worth it. It's not worth the stress and the aggravation of running a small company if you don't enjoy doing it. And also the rewards you get are directly from the kind of the passion side of what you're doing. I like helping people either learn more about cycling or learn more about bikes and i enjoy writing i get to do that both of those things nowhere near as much as i'd like because it's a small company and i've got lots of other stuff to do um i like taking photos i like doing graphic design i like creative stuff i like writing i don't get to do that anymore anymore i get to do enough of it that makes it worthwhile um to put up with the other stuff that you wouldn't like to do if you had enough money and time to pay someone else to do the rubbish stuff, you know? So, yeah, it's definitely helps that it's a passion. And I don't think anybody in many businesses who start themselves and are growing like themselves, um, would try and do it without that.
0: And knowing what you know now, would you start a company again? I mean, yeah. Any, what you learned, the the risks you've taken, the mistakes you made, the skills you learnt—would any of that change your mind if you went back seven years and did no, it No, it
1: wouldn't. It wouldn't. There's no way it would stop me doing it. It would change huge amount of what I would do, but that goes straight back to like the f- very first thing we talked about. It's like all of those things I did where shit went bad. You know, stuff goes wrong in life. Stuff goes wrong, and you learn from it and that's cool. You know, there's no such thing. It's not a mistake until you do it the second time. It's not, it's learning, you know, and people who think they have to get it right all the time, never do anything. You know, you wouldn't have started a YouTube channel if you thought, well, I have to get 10,000 subs within the first month and I've got to get X amount of hours of viewing or whatever. You were like, well, eh, yeah, see what happens. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. No. What would you say the, the biggest mistakes you've made are, and what are the biggest lessons you've learned so long throughout this process?
1: Biggest mistake is presuming people know what you mean. So many times. I mean, and some of that comes down to poor communication, and some of that comes down to completely misunderstanding different. Cultures and languages. Okay. Biggest, the biggest learning I have is, I think, or the most def- the the thing that's had the most profound effect on one particular part of the business is understanding that Mandarin as a language, so Chinese, but Mandarin is the the Chinese dialect that people I work with speak has no tense. There is no past, present, or future tense. There just is. So the very idea of an if this, then that, it's not that they don't understand it. It's that it cannot exist. So if you imagine that you know we've learned through basically the fundamentals of our language and the way we process information, if this, then that, it's just part of our being. It's not just a way of speaking or doing. If your language doesn't have that, like from the second you're born and you start speaking and learning and living, as a concept, it doesn't exist. So, you know, you, you'd say something of, well, if we if we if we can get these friends by this date, then we'll do this, and then we'll do that. And but 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 if it's a bit later, we're going to do this, and 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 that can be like small things about a detail. It can be, you know, it's like, well, if we change this, will it affect the production time? If we do that, will it do this? What about if we, you know, all of those real simple little conversational things, you know, they'll just say yes or they'll say no, and you're like, no what? No which bit? And they're just like, huh? Because it's not something that's – and it's not that they're being awkward. It's not that they're being stupid. It's just there isn't anything that works in that. And when you understand that, it fundamentally shifts how you have to communicate, process, model, and everything. It's just a bizarre thing that I remember such a vivid conversation, like all the best conversations, it was Tai Chun Bike Week over a few too many beers. But it was just one of those things that someone who'd been there 15 years was like, oh, you know, the first, the best thing I ever learned here. And like, oh <laughs> it all makes sense <laughs> so that was definitely the biggest thing um mistakes there's just way too many and like i said they're not mistakes they're decisions that were made that had huge impacts that i would do differently next time
0: so no major setbacks, oh, along huge the way.
1: setbacks all the time but you none know, of that, that deterred from... you from
0: your mission to
1: create a bike brand. And nothing's. I mean, we've been, you know, you are scrabbling up the cliff because you've been kicked off it at huge amounts of times. Things can come made with the wrong thing, or they paint the frame the wrong colour because they've misunderstood something. Now we had frames that we'd ordered. We once made a black and black frame for a trade show as a one-off, as a like thing at Taipei show of like, oh, look at this shiny gloss black. Gloss, matte, black. Isn't it shiny? Look at what we can do. And then we ordered some more black and jade frames as we always do. Another order, da da da. And they turned up wrong colour. Loads of them pre-sold, and you're like, what? What do you mean? Huh? <laughs> Why have you made these this colour? Oh, you said black. Well, like every time we've ordered black for the last ten batches, it's been this. Oh yes, but you made this one once. You're like, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I know, there's, there's just lots of stuff like that oh we didn't realize you actually wanted the cable guides on it that you just spent ages doing we put the old ones on again cool you so
0: know. if somebody's watching or listening to this and thinking about starting a bike company would you advise them to do it or or try and put them off
1: um if they've got an idea they think is good go for it why not you know if you've got the money, you don't need much, but it depends what it is. If you want to make a brand new carbon fiber TT bike that's going to change the world, you probably need quite a lot of money because carbon fiber molds are expensive. Mm. And you've got to know, really be sure of what you want. And re- you know, there's, there's so many things if you go down that route. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like any start, start anything, just you've got to go to first principles and be clear of what you're trying to achieve just ride bikes wants to help people ride better bikes right it's pretty much the same thing i want to do it's like we both like riding bikes and want people to ride the best bikes they can do and that's my thing and the detail of what the bikes are that's kind of secondary but it's good but you've got to have a basic good fundamental idea so if you want to start a bike company if you're doing it because you think there's a, bit, a great business opportunity there and you'll make money easily, yeah, go to something else because there's easier ways to make money. But if you're doing it because you passionately believe you've got something that will help somebody within cycling do something with more fun or less pain, be that metaphorical or physical, whatever, yeah, go for it. Why not? What's the worst that can happen? Yeah,
0: some good advice. There. Some good advice. Um, where do you see yourself in five years' time? In that famous interview question. Um,
1: me personally. Or you, or you and the company, or, or um, whether together like, or not. I would like to be in a position where somebody more competent than me that's running the company day to day, and I get to focus on making more better bikes and educating people about how good cycling is and what things they can concentrate on to improve their cycling could be technique could be how to make the most of things could be how to learn how to ride better. It could be getting more people from less white stale pale men, less people that look like me cycling, you know, get, get more people from different communities, get more people from different backgrounds. You know, it's something that I'm kind of, have a reasonably strong focus on in the next kind of couple of years and you know one of the reasons we got this space is so that we can offer it out to groups who don't have the opportunity of doing stuff okay um so that's a big part of what i would like to do get more people cycling
0: so the bike company not the end of your journey that you've been on for the last 10-15 years it's just another step in your journey to wherever it is you're going
1: um yeah i mean my journey stops when When it all starts, this, yeah, I mean, Bowman will almost certainly play quite a long role within it. You know, I'm not going to say it's going to be forever, but what I have created will have some form of legacy in terms of improving cycling for as many people as that can be. Um, You know, we're known for making a race bike, the Palace, you know, because we've done so well with it. But the reality is we make a bike that's good for racing because it's fun um, and all our other bikes are fun and cycling is fun and I want more people to have fun. And wherever I am in five years' time, I might well be having fun with a nice little place in Mallorca that I live in six months of the year and do a load of marketing and product design while I'm there. I might be here, I might still be in the you know Unit 39 doing this, chatting to people about bikes every day. No idea, but it'll be fun journey. Lots to look forward to then.
0: Yeah, I think so. so. Before we wrap up this podcast, do you want to give viewers and listeners a, a bit of a taste of what's coming up from Bowman for the rest of the year?
1: Um,
0: what's on the well, uh, timeline?
1: I mean, this year we've got quite a few more options on full builds coming. Um, I mean, it's a it's an odd year for stuff. You know, As anybody will know who's trying to buy a bike, it's really hard to get hold of anything. And that isn't just from your local shop or your website. That's from manufacturing vendors in Asia as, or Europe or just as much as it is from Billy Bob's bikes on the high street. Um, but we're doing as much as we can to get as many people access to new bikes as we can. Um, we've got – we will have a gravel bike coming out at some point this year, Massively dependent upon manufacturing in Asia, you know, when we can get the capacity to finish and finalise various things. Um, And urban, not likely this year necessarily, but, um, you know, I've got, I've always ridden bikes around as transport. Um, You know, I was bike messenger for long enough on and off. So bikes and town and urban transport, it's it's going to be a way that, you know, we all learn to be better at living in cities. You know, cars and other stuff is not the way forward. So urban stuff, gravel stuff, more complete bikes. And the other part of what we'll do more of this year is opening up the space metaphorically and kind of literally physically to get, to help other people who feel that they're not included um, to help them find somewhere they feel safe or less judged or or whatever that may be. So, and also more education, helping people um, learn their way around, learn more about bikes, learn more about cycling, wise group wise little intricacies of group riding, all that sort of stuff. So education, helping people get more people on bikes.
0: Good stuff. And people can find you online on Twitter and Instagram. I'll put some links down below. So you can check yeah, out your... Bowman,
1: uh, Bowman-cycles.com. Um, and it's Bowman underscore cycles on Instagram. Twitter, we generally don't use a huge amount. So we'll, uh, we're on there and it, it, we, we do try and get things there, but we've got so many other ways that are better at getting in touch. Okay. Um. And YouTube and YouTube, we're starting up some stuff again. A little bit of a reboot on that coming soonish. Um. And Facebook is Bowman Cycles UK.
0: Okay. Well, Neil, uh, thanks for uh for joining me today. My first ever podcast. Fascinating oh. insight into uh, the highs and lows of starting a bike company. No, it's been um, good.
1: I mean, I'll you know me, I'll happily chat. Chat this stuff over.
0: Well, i would happy to get you on the on a podcast for a, another topic. Maybe talk about aluminium That's your choice of material. Mm-hmm. Something we have not really touched on yet, but that's a whole other episode. I think so. We'll save that for next time. And um, uh, we'll, we'll,
1: know. we'll talk about how to learn how to where to ride. It's more interesting.
0: Where to ride? Yes
1: how how to learn your local areas
0: because uh, I'm, I'm definitely up for a change. My local area I know it so well after the last year of riding the same thirty mile radius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To spread my wings and go further
1: afield. Yeah, but exactly. Well we can we can do something on that. So but yeah, no, it's been it's been good. So look forward to that. And um yeah, thanks for having me. Good stuff. Well thanks for
0: listening and watching if you're on YouTube and stay tuned for the next episode very soon.